Hello, AP scholars. Today we're going to be talking about the Progressive Era from 1901 to 1917. Here we go. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. I do not shrink from this your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You have to look at the progressive era as a reaction to all of the th ways in which our society has changed. We have obviously industrialization, but also you have immigration and the rapid urban expansion within many of our industrial cities that has changed so much in the past 40 years. There's a belief amongst the population that our society, politically, economically, socially, has not kept up with that pace of change. So because of that, there is a desire from the general public, largely uh, much more of a, a middle class group than in previous generations, um, to change things, to improve things. And they focused on these three areas, all right? Limiting the power of big business, whether that leads to corruption or just unfair economic um, opportunities for other businesses or political corruption. Um, improve democracy for the people because as we know we were set up as a republic and in many ways democracy was kind of at an arm's length away from many of the people within our society especially those of lower social status and it was much more important to be connected to one of the political bosses than it was to be someone who is politically active as an individual and then the last part is really strengthening the concept of social justice that Things would be fair for all people. Liberty and justice for all is what we say we stand for. Let's live up to that ideal. These are the three pillars that we try and focus each one of these progressive era changes and attempts at improvement. And I mention it continuously in class, but very rarely uh, does change anywhere happen from the top down. Sometimes people wait around for a savior to show up and say, I will solve everything. But the reality of the situation is that our system is not set up for that to work. Most of the time, in order for great changes to occur, they have to start at the grassroots level. They have to start in local communities. They have to start at the state level. Often you hear in our federalist system, the states are the laboratory of democracy, where the federal government might not be willing to take a chance and pass a new um, piece of legislation on a controversial issue, but they'll allow certain states to do it. They'll let it, uh, let that situation uh, play out and see if there's benefit to it. And if it seems like something that is beneficial to a majority of people, maybe we'll try that at another state. And then as the movement spreads, eventually there's pressure at the federal level, at the national level for wider changes to occur. All right. So you have to look at the progressive era as, in many ways, private organizations, local groups, activists, people that got off their butts, 
went out and tried to change their local communities. These were the people that eventually built a movement that became a national issue. And it was awakening the national consciousness that forced the major political parties on the national level, at the presidential level, the Republican and the Democratic parties, to actually have to work to reform society because that's where the people were. So I mentioned earlier the major distinction of who these progressives were more middle class than ever before. Prior to this populist, many poor and rural farmers were the ones desiring change during the populist party and the working class people. But with industrialization, we have an entire new class established uh, to fill that gap between the incredibly wealthy and the poor and the working class. So the middle class has a um, renewed sense of responsibility to improve their society, and that is what really takes root during this era. Okay, and they're diverse. You have the Protestant church leaders who are preaching what we call a social gospel, um, African Americans who are trying to go up against the difficulties that they have in the South, the discrimination and the um, segregation that becomes commonplace throughout the South with the Jim Crow laws. You have union leaders and the working class people trying to galvanize into units to collectively bargain for the first time. And you have this radical group of feminists who have this crazy idea that women should be treated equal. So um, all these things are continuations of the populist ideals, but at a wider level and at a higher level of social status. So there's a little bit more of an impact um, because this is happening in the urban areas, not in the rural parts of the cities. One of the first things that's really important to recognize is there's a piece of legislation that is passed before 1900 in the 1890s the Pendleton Act. And this is crucial because it eliminates the spoil system. The civic service job, um, it used to be you only had to know the mayor or somebody in a position of power to get the job. So therefore, who are your loyalties to? Where are you accountable? If you, ha if you get that job, you want to serve that person. So all of a sudden, favors and being loyal are more important to, for you to make sure that you keep your job what we start to establish is the civil service test. Okay, so now we have the ability to hire the people that are the most qualified, and therefore it's an effort to limit corruption. Initially, this is just very few positions, but um, because it was seen as a status symbol to be hired, that you only the very qualified got hired, the middle class started to be elevated to want to take these jobs. And many people took these civic service jobs much more seriously than in the past when they were seen to just be political lackeys doing what their political boss said. So um, the other thing that's critical to understanding the desire for change is often the Protestant missionary spirit. Okay, the middle class reformers from before in the 1830s and 40s have grown. All right, um, the movements we saw playing into the lead up to the Civil War, they are re um, resurging, especially the temperance movement. The basic idea of rejecting vice found in your lives, and many people believe that it was often found in urban living. So they taught this concept of a moral responsibility. Don't point out all the flaws. You have a responsibility to live up to the way in which you want your society to be. We all have a social responsibility to look out for one another. So this is, once again, most reform in our country has a religious foundation. And religiously inspired reformers create this quote-unquote social gospel. And this is something that encourages many Protestants to take action in their daily lives instead of sitting back and letting things happen. Um, 
So one of the th key things to break this to a national level is the strong leadership that was required to kind of champion these issues. Early on, a lot of grassroots leaders are um, pushing this at the local and state um, institutions, but eventually it has to be um, part of the national mantle. So you have the charismatic, determined, bold leaders that we have listed here, Teddy Roosevelt, Robert LaFollette, and the Democrats have Woodrow Wilson and William James Bryant. Jennings Bryan. So Jennings Bryan is a leftover from the populist movement, as we know, but these are the people that are speaking out against this traditional status quo, saying things need to change, get behind me, I will take you there. And so this ideology develops largely from what we spoke about earlier, the transcendentalism, the second great awakening from 70, 80 years prior, that romanticism of we should live in a beautiful utopia that we can achieve this and that it God is um, Jesus Christ is coming back the second coming is on the uh, horizon we need to prepare we must take action now we'll be judged based on how our society is that shifts to now more of a pragmatic um, mindset pragmatism of all right we might not be able to solve all the issues but let's look at this scientifically what's the issue what's the problem how do we solve this? Let's get some good minds together to figure out solutions. So examining and finding truth through experimentation. All right, just like science experiment, we'll put this policy in place, we'll put this law in place. If this does not solve the problem, we'll try something else. And we'll keep trying until we can do it over and over again. We shouldn't just pass laws for the fun of it. Laws should be tested for their efficacy or their effectiveness. And if they're ineffective, we'll reject them and find something else. So there's pragmatic notion to government starts in the 1890s, and it carries forward towards um, this progressive era. And for the first time, people start to question laissez-faire economics. It was sacrilege to do this only 30, 40 years prior. But many people are arguing that we've seen the excesses of laissez-faire economics when the government stands on the sidelines and there is no official um, regulating or policing or refereeing the game. If there are no rules, things can get out of hand and the wealthy and the powerful will take advantage. So businesses in the local sense of mom and pop shops and small businesses, they're run by individuals. But these large corporations that have developed over the industrial and the gilded age, we see that these faceless corporate entities, what they argued was they have no responsibility to their own community because they are um, an abstract concept. Therefore, they have no problem taking advantage and exploiting the worker, exploiting the consumer. And so because of that, we need to establish a system that is going to work to help promote competition and protect workers. All right, so government does not have the role of standing on the sideline hands off. There's more of a push that government needs to get involved and change the behavior of businesses by simply enforcing simple rules. This era, right before the, um, the progressive era begins, we have the Sherman Antitrust Act established, and that's crucial to um, the eventual breakup of many of these trusts, okay? Um, now, when we go back to the muckrakers, you can't address a problem unless you're aware it is present. So one of the crucial roles that muckraking journalists, photographers, and um, authors, and uh, cartoonists play during this era is bringing the problems of our society to the general public. 
okay? It's very easy for these things to be hidden beneath the surface. And many people, even today you can think of it as we live our lives not worrying about what else is going on around the world. And you may not know what problems are just in a town over from you. But what these muckraking journalists really did was pull out and expose these ills that are going on in our society, the embarrassing and disturbing truths that are on the underbelly of what we can't see, pulling out the dirt from the darkness and shining light on them. Um, there's often this expression that light is the best disinfectant. That is, if you shine a light on something, that is when people will be motivated to change it. Okay, so you have Damaris Lloyd attacking Standard Oil on the railroads early on, series of articles. There's uh, Sidney McClure's magazine specifically highlighting Lincoln Steffens and Ida Tarbell going after Standard Oil. Um, you have Jacob Reese, which we've looked at, the, uh, how the other half lives, changing the view in which how Americans, specifically here in New York, viewed the inequities and the vast inequalities between the wealthy and the poor. Lincoln Steffens also does, says the same about the shame of cities. Frank Norris famously goes after the octopus in the pit. The octopus is something that is always used to characterize Standard Oil and their uh, ability to squeeze out competition um, and their horizontal integration. Um, but like things today, even at this era, when you constantly see all these terrible things on front page news and you're constantly told that you're supposed to be shocked and you're supposed to be uh, terrified and you're supposed to be um, really uh, enraged, eventually readers become desensitized. So by the time we get to 1910, fewer people are really outraged when they see these um, terrible things in the headlines. And corporations start to realize, well, we can play this game too, and they start to try and make the effort to improve their image. Public relations emerges during the progressive era because businesses realize, well, we can tell our story too if we emphasize all the good we do. So when we think, think about the progressive era and the progressive era activity we've done this week, we highlighted how state and local changes happen first. And we've seen throughout our, um, the efforts after um, the Civil War and the era of Reconstruction, how many of the problems occurred during our society were surrounded by the lack of access to the ballot for certain people. Okay, obviously African Americans were um, technically given the right to vote, but that was not something with the heavy suppression of the vote in the South and eventually the Jim Crow laws that established segregation. They did not have access to the ballot. <coughs> Women do not fully have access to, to the ballot in the entire country until the 19th Amendment, close to 1920. So when we look at voter participation, you have the efforts during the early progressive era at the state and local level to make sure that we have just voting practices. Okay, the political bosses had been manipulating their elections for so long. You have um, many states in the South still doing it up until the 18, uh, 1950s and 60s, but Massachusetts becomes the first state to try and ensure that things like the secret ballot are used and that we have an independent commission regulating the elections. Um, by 1910, Almost all states um, are adopting this measure one by one. Um, direct primaries are crucial in terms of expanding democracy to the people. And the reason being, the era of big political bosses and the um, power brokers in politics making decisions on which politicians will get elected and which politicians would run had left the people feeling like they were detached from making these politicians accountable. If somebody gets their job, 
simply because they're friends with somebody or they're somebody known to be loyal to the party and to toe the party line, they're not going to care what the public thinks. They're not going to care what their constituents think. But if you have a direct primary where the Democratic Party and the Republican Party nominate their own politicians by giving the people the direct power to do this, a separate election from Election Day, but basically an election to find out who will run on Election Day, a semi a semifinal, if you will. This direct primary is used in by the time we get to 1915 in every single state. So now you have ways to, um, the people can feel like, instead of the Democratic Party holding up, this is the person who will be your politician, go ahead and vote for them if you're a Democrat. They get to choose who's the person that we believe in, who's the person that is going to represent our values the most. If we did not have primary systems, um, it's hard to say, I, I think it's, um, in the 2016 election, President Trump would not have come out and been the first choice of the Republican Party going into the 2016 election. But it was over the course of several primaries in which he proved himself to be the person that the Republican Party um, and the people of the Republican Party wanted as their nominee. So if you the beginning of the process, there's no way that he would have been one out of the 15 selected. But the people were able to make that decision for themselves. And that's what the direct party uh, primaries do, is they give the people of the party the opportunity to choose who they want. This also plays into the direct election of senators. Nevada is the very first to allow their people to elect their two senators to represent them in the United States Senate in Washington, D.C. By the time we get to 1912, there's over 30 states doing this. Once again, this is an effort to give the people more power, make politicians more accountable to them instead of the party brokers within their state houses, and limit political corruption. Because if you're a big business, you can just go to the state house and tell them, this is the pe these are the two people we want you to vote for, here's the money. Now you have to um, worry about the American public and each state electing them themselves rather than the state legislatures getting to choose. So by the time we get to 1913, we have the 17th Amendment passed where all senators in every state must be directly elected. And then the last thing in terms of political reform from the social and, um, excuse me, political reform on the state level are the three topics of initiative, referendum, and recall. Initiative is the people get to take the initiative themselves. You draw up a bill, you get public support by signing a petition, send it into Albany, they'll be forced to vote on it. Okay, South Dakota is the first state to adopt these things. Many of the states out west are the first to kind of uh, initiate these issues. Montana is the first to give women the right to vote. It's all because of the fact that on the frontier it was this more of this democratic sense and less of an entrenched political system like in the urban centers of the Northeast. Um, referendum is the ability to have one bill voted on on Election Day by the American public. So they can't decide in Albany, let the American people, specifically in New York, decide. Um, it passes, it goes into law. It does not, it's rejected. You also have a situation of recall. Um, the best uh, example I have for recall is about 10 years ago, um, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger, becomes the governor of California because of a recall election. Mark Davis was an unpopular governor. He was recalled by the uh, California population. They basically said, we are unhappy with the job you're doing. You're raising our taxes too much. The economy is in free fall. We want a new governor. They have an election to decide, will there be a recall? Yes. Then he gets to run again, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, based on his name recognition, becomes the governor or governator. So. 
there's only 11 states that offer recall in many ways because that is seen to be a little bit extreme where the population can constantly pull out their politician at any moment. The best form of recall that we have now or term limits is the fact that many of our uh, elected officials have to run for re-election. So um, for serious offenses, you, people can be impeached when they're in political office, but most of the time you go through the political process of re-election and just elect somebody else would be the best way to do it. Reforms continued at the local levels, specifically in cities um, known as municipal reform. Um, we have Toledo Mayor uh, Samuel Jones. He introduced this comprehensive plan to make sure that the government of the city was providing services to the public. Free kindergartens, public playgrounds, and night schools we mentioned in the notes. Uh, it, it was continued by another Ohio mayor in Cleveland, Tom Johnson. He pushed for tax reform. Um, very, very uh, inexpensive trolley fares, only three cents for all Cleveland citizens. And he made the effort to control and pub have public ownership of some utilities, but he was unsuccessful. This is a movement that happened over time, and the one successful uh, sphere of ownership was specifically water systems, where by 1915, uh, two-thirds of the country had um, the cities owned their own water. Therefore, they would not have to worry about skyrocketing prices and, pr and corporate profits, but really a necessity that all people should be given. Um, later on, there's issues with different cities owning gas lines, power plants, and transportation systems like we have public transportation now. Um, and one of the other key elements was just a new vision of how government should be run at the local level. Instead of electing a mayor who makes all decisions, there's uh, in Texas they came up with a commission plan where you don't just elect the mayor, but you elect the heads of all the city departments, and they can therefore be more accountable to the people. Um, other situations like Dayton, Ohio, was the first example of a city council where there are people kind of um, delegating what sh work should be done, and they're the people that must um, be accountable to the voters because they're the ones that are getting elected. They're being hired as city council members. So this municipal style or manager council plan of government becomes one of the most popular in the 1920s. Um, other state reform included battling in fraudulent uh, insurance companies, as well as um, regulatory commissions at the local level. We see the temperance continuing to be an issue uh, and the push for prohibition throughout the 1900s early on. It largely is focused on urban centers, that alcohol was the gateway to political corruption by the, in the view of the Protestants proposing prohibition. Uh, rural reformers, people out of the cities, viewed the urban center as part of the corrupting uh, influence in our society and therefore the moral vice of alcohol needs to be eradicated. So this was not something that started with the uh, 20th Amendment, but what happened was you have state by state throughout the country outlawing the sale of alcohol throughout the 19 teens and in 1915 we have two-thirds of the states prohibiting it. The other element of social welfare is something that is taken up during the progressive era which has never been mentioned before this idea that we should have homes and houses to help the less fortunate uh, and impoverished, but also orphans. So you have ways in trying to emphasize better schooling. Liberalized divorce laws just gives women the opportunity to ask for a divorce, not just men. Um, this concept of parole, that you can be released early from your sentence uh, on good behavior, and then you can be um, you know, given the opportunity for redemption. 
juvenile courts to recognize the fact that children should not be held to the same standard as adults. Um, and the other thing is safety regulations for tenements and factories. We, we learned about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire Factory in 1911. There was nothing that was more important to include the push for safety regulations in factories and in working conditions for people more than that. Um, and for the first instance in our country's history, we have limits on the death penalty. But during the Progressive Era, there was one thing that many people had a consensus on was the idea of labor exploitating uh, children, right? So National Child Labor Committee tried to pass these laws to establish children should not be forced to work um, below a certain age. In addition to children, there's a push by Florence Kelly and the National Consumers League to pass state laws to protect women from long hours, specifically limiting them to a 10-hour workday initially, and also the, the idea that women, especially women that are going to be bearing children, need uh, special protection from long hours. Now, while this was um, helpful, it had the unintended consequence of kind of pushing women out of the, the higher paying work and into more menial work, office work, desk work, and the secretarial position uh, considered that being a women's job starts to emerge um, during this era. Um, so women later on are trying to compete as equals to men in the job force, but this type of legislation, this type of mindset prevents some of that. Now, on the national scale, political reform starts with Teddy Roosevelt. He assumes the president at a very young age. With, he was vice president. McKinley is killed. He takes over for him. One of the interesting things about this is the fact that Teddy Roosevelt was kind of causing too much trouble as the governor of New York. And one of the party bosses within the Republican Party, um, his name is um, Thomas C. Platt, he kind of pushed Republican leaders at the convention in 1900 um, to get Teddy Roosevelt out of the governorship because he was causing too many problems for the Republicans in New York and trying to do too many reforms, uh, that they wanted him in a job that's a lot less significant and has very little power, that job being the vice presidency. He's the one that pushes for his nomination. He wins unanimously at the Republican convention, and now all of a sudden he's the running mate of McKinley. So they put him in a position where he's not able to affect any change and they don't have to deal with him. McKinley is killed. He takes over, and then shortly we see that he's able to initiate the progressive ideals that he believed in and the reform uh, mindset that he brought to the presidency. Um, he sets kind of the precedent that the executive, the president, can set or call for a legislative agenda and be a leader for Congress um, to follow, and it is really with his square deal, telling everybody that instead of... Um, the playing field being, being tilted to the advantage of the big corporations and the trusts, I'm going to give you a square deal where everybody has a level shot. So one of the most important things he does early on has to do with the anthracite coal mine strike. So there's a dispute between the union and the corporate leaders. For the first time, a president of the United States steps in and encourages them to arbitrate the dispute. They have to settle it. He's not going to side with the business owners. And for the first time, unions kind of get a lift in um, legitimacy because of how he views collective bargaining as something that is um, um, honest and something that is necessary for the improvement of these conditions. So Roosevelt threatens to control the mine if they do not give in. Therefore, he helps the owners compromise and give a 10% wage increase and a nine-hour workday. The owners do not have to recognize the union going forward, but this is important because it sets 
precedent of later um, acceptance of unions in the future. He's known as the trust buster. He goes after uh, Northern Securities Company specifically with the Sherman Antitrust Act had, having been previously passed. He's one of the, uh, does this 40 times to go after other antitrust, um, takes other antitrust actions specifically targeting Standard Oil. Um, he does not try and control the market, but more try and take out the bad actors. Just because somebody has a dominance in the market does not mean that they are negative in his sense. It's those that are only using illegal or shady tactics that he is targeting. Railroad uh, regulation. The Elkins Act strengthens the Interstate um, Commerce Commission. The Hepburn Act gives them the opportunity to set just and reasonable rates so that we have a uniformity to the rates in which railroads are charging general customers. Now, very few people reacted to Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, quite like Roosevelt did. And he really, uh, after reading, reacted in a strong way, saying the Pure and Food and Drug Act in 1906, Meat Inspection Act, were two things that he championed and wanted to make sure took place. And one of the things that is his lasting legacy as President of the United States actually might be conservation because of the fact that he was unique in having this position prior uh, compared to other presidents. So he used the Forest Reserve Act of 1891 more than anyone else in the past. 150 million acres are reserved. Then later on, he has the New Lands Reclamation Act to provide money for the sale of public lands for irrigation products to try and develop this land so it's not just a wasteland of deserts. And he tries to promote this idea of why it's important by hosting a commission for all the governors throughout the country to come. Um, and he establishes Gifford Pinchot, the first director of U.S. Forest Service. So this is something that he, as an outdoorsman, was very important to him. And he helped establish the importance and the legacy of the national parks that we have today. Taft's presidency comes in, and he actually, although he's not known as the trust buster that Teddy Roosevelt is, it's largely because Teddy Roosevelt had the personality to sell himself and have that label, and the media really enjoyed covering Roosevelt, whereas Taft was more of your typical politician who didn't necessarily um, like the limelight as much as just wanted to get things done in the back rooms. So Taft actually went after double the amount of trust that Roosevelt did, even went after U.S. Steel, when Roosevelt had previously approved a merger that they were having to grow, and Roosevelt took that as a personal attack on him. Roosevelt um, later challenges Taft for the 1912 um, nomination of the Republican Party be largely because of that. The Bureau of Mines and the ability of the federal government to designate certain land off limits as reserved forest and oil lands uh, is a precedent that Taft sets during this era. The Mann-Elkins Act also expands the power of the Interstate Commerce Commission. New railroad rates are now being able to set in place. They expand to the telephone, the telegraph, and cable companies. Under um, Taft is when the 16th Amendment passes Congress. It's later ratified in 1913. Now we have the ability of the federal government to collect an income tax. But one of the things that happens during Taft's administration is he decides to raise tariffs when he had previously um, promised not to. Um, and because of that, the Payne-Aldrich tariff is kind of the uh, point in which it gives the opportunity for the Republican Party to split, which later hurts both of them and gives uh, both Roosevelt and Taft and gives the opportunity for Wilson to win the election in 1912. Uh, there's a feud between Pinchot, who... Roosevelt appointed, and Ballinger, who is the interior secretary of the time, basically in charge of all the public land. And it was a dispute over the fact that what was supposed to be reserved seemed to be given out in, uh, to certain private developers, which was uh, supposed to be um, outlawed. So Pinchot criticizes Taft's 
Interior Secretary for Insubordination. The conservatives applaud the fact that he does this, but progressives feel like Taft has been a traitor by appointing somebody that is going against the ideals of conservation. The midterm elections are really where Taft miscalculates and um, tries to defend the conservative wing of the Republican Party rather than the progressive wing. And he miscalculates because most of the progressive Republicans end up defeating the conservatives. And now Congress is comprised of a delegation of Republicans that are not really defenders of Taft and his policies during this era. This also gives rise to the, um, of the Socialist Party. We have almost 150,000 members throughout the country during the Progressive Era that are members of the Socialist Party, largely because they saw the errors of the Gilded Age as a way in which they are never going to get the change that they want within the current system. They believe that there needs to be more radical change, and that is why they're calling for public ownership of railroads, utilities, oil, and steel. At the local level, people would be okay with this in cities and things like that. But on a national level, for many people, this was a little bit too radical of an idea. Many progressives had similar causes that the um, socialists had, but not willing to go as far as the socialists called for it. So that brings us to the election of 1912. We know that Teddy Roosevelt decides to run again. He creates the Bull Moose Party because he does not win the Republican nomination where they stick with Taft. What this does is it splits the vote of all Republicans who come to the polls. The Democrat Woodrow Wilson wins with a plurality of the vote, not a majority. And um, this is really the number one reason why he wins is because the Republican Party, which had been so successful in winning national elections up until this moment, split their votes in two different candidates. So that brings us to Woodrow Wilson in 1913. He takes office. First thing he does is he calls for a reduction in tariffs. Why? Well, the Republicans have been taking the effort in protecting businesses, domestic industry. Well, he's, the Democrats are trying to champion the needs of the farmers and the people that want to be able to open up into international trade. So tariff reduction all the way down to 50 years also gives the opportunity for him to say, we don't need to rely on tariffs for income now that we have the income tax. So the graduated income tax begins from 1% to 6% during this era. Banking reform is critical to this era as well, establishing a national banking system with 12 district banks, thanks to the Federal Reserve Act. This is something that we had not had for quite some time, which can help regulate interest rates and control the monetary policy of the government and our country, hoping to strengthen the dollar and help stabilize the value of our currency. Um, there's also business regulation. Sherman Antitrust Act did, had a few loopholes, didn't have enough teeth to really take the action that many of these presidents wanted them to. The Clayton Antitrust Act strengthened it, as well as exempted unions from the same type of actions that trusts were supposed to be targeted for. It. The Federal Trade Commission, an agency, is developed to investigate and take action on corrupt practices, unfair scams, businesses that were taking advantage of the consumer and the market. Well, now you have an agency to go to, to report to, and the federal inspectors will go in and look and shut down those businesses if they are deemed to be doing things that are illegal or unfair practices. We also have the Federal Farm Loan Act. Because of the fact that farmers have a different um, type of risk that they are taking on a yearly basis in terms of the loans they require to um, get all the supplies they need and the, the um, seeds they need to make their crops, you need farm loan banks established to provide farmers any uh, loans at a much lower interest rate than you would provide any other business or private um, individual. So that is why that is established in 1916. And the Child Labor Act basically is another way of getting around and punishing corporations that are using um, children to help them manufacture, basically outlawing products from being shipped. 
by um, companies that are using children of a younger age. Now, African-Americans during this progressive era are also crucial. These two leading thinkers, one being Booker T. Washington, the other being W.E.B. Du Bois. And while many progressives are calling for change all throughout the country, it's mostly a white movement, middle-class movement, urban movement in the North and uh, in urban areas. The South is still dealing with um, Jim Crow segregation. You have lynching rates increasing during Wilson's presidency. There's this effort to try and reestablish the dominance of uh, white society in the 20, 30 years after Reconstruction as more and more of the Republican influence from Reconstruction is disappearing. With all this being said, unfortunately, there were very few progressives that were focused on the plight of African Americans in the South. Um, Lynching rates increased during Wilson's presidency, and many of the progressive Democrats were forced to kind of toe the party line and go along with what the conservative Democrats wanted. So most of the reforms were focused on white communities. Now, within that, the Booker T. Washington and Du Bois differences, the two different approaches on what they should do for the future, Washington argued a stress on economics, that the best way for them to move up throughout the social ladder is to concentrate on industrial skills that are valued in society. Therefore, they'll have political leverage to then later get civil and political rights. Education for economic progress were the most important thing in his mind, that if you get a trade, if you go to a vocational school, if you learn some type of um, skill that they cannot take away from you, if you're a skilled laborer instead of an unskilled laborer, you'll have much more leverage into trying to helping your family and moving forward in promoting equality of the races. Now, Dubois comes on a little bit later. In 1903, he writes the book, The Souls of the Black Folk. And what he focuses on is all of that sounds nice, But if you're never even given the opportunity to sit in the same building, if you're never given the opportunity to go to the same restaurant, use that money that you've earned, then what really is that economic progress worth if you don't have social and political rights? So he focused primarily on the civil rights of African-Americans, specifically in the South, and how to combat it. He called for persistent agitation of the current system was the best way to kind of confront it. And this is kind of why the great migration that took place between 1910 and 1930 were, uh, was so prevalent. You have over one million blacks migrating north, mostly looking for jobs, but also for safety, with the race relations in the South being so de- um, so devastating to them. Uh, the deteriorating race relations were a p- product of this. Also, you have the cotton crops of the past. There's this uh, boll weevil, basically a beetle that destroys much of the cotton crops and makes it harder to survive on just a cotton um, cash crop. And many of the factory jobs later, closer to World War I, open up with the men traveling over to Europe to fight. So African-American women are given a great opportunity during that era. Um, does not mean that they move to the North with the absence of discrimination, but just simply escaping um, for a matter of survival. Okay, the civil rights organizations that are established first, the Niagara Movement in 1905, later on the NAACP is created, and eventually the National Urban League is formed, all for similar um, purposes to try and promote civil and political advancement. Now, the last topic we have is women's suffrage and when it comes to the progressive movement. You have the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which, which really made the point of the fact that if you gave women the right to vote, they would feel like their voices were being heard and they'd be more emboldened to um, take care of their families in an industrialized society. Basically saying, 
it's the lack of access to a voice that is what our major complaint is. And that's why some people like Alice Paul broke off and became more militant suffragists where they were calling for action in the streets consistently, protests, um, strikes and different things where they are disrupting the current status quo in order to demand what they wanted. All, right, all this comes to fruition when finally the National Amendment in 1920 is passed. The 19th Amendment gives all women the right to vote. There are other reforms taking place during the, this progressive women, uh, movement. You have uh, educational quality for women rather than just getting uh, cooking, cleaning, tasks being their education. They should be given the same opportunities as men. The idea of liberalizing marriage and divorce laws that now women can call for a divorce, not just men. Um, discrimination in businesses and professions but also recognizing women's rights to own property. A widow would not be given the same opportunity to own property. Most um, in prior to this era, property would go back to the family of the husband who passed away rather than giving it to the woman. Um, and one of the more critical um, advances is this idea of birth control. Margaret Sanger is one of the first people to advocate for education, especially among the poor, because if you have um, too many children, it's very difficult to pull yourself out of poverty. So the idea of educating people, uh, especially those in poverty, of how they can avoid getting pregnant, as well as different ideas in terms of women taking more agency and deciding when they want to be pregnant, that becomes kind of the, in the political sense of uh, the feminist movement is for equal rights. Also, it should be equal agency to decide when and when not you would like to have a child, um, whereas before it was usually the husband's choice. And um, this movement Margaret Sanger creates later uh, turns into the development of the Planned Parenthood movement. Okay, So that's the conclusion of the progressive era. Um, we will see you next time. Take care.